I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, July 28, 2020. Coming up, a new twist on an old ailment. Foodborne salmonella infections might pave the way for arthritis, Parkinson's, and even Alzheimer's disease. So uh, to put it, to put this in perspective, you probably couldn't pick a worse protein from salmonella to be inside your body. And they're really, really tough. They're really hard for the body to clear. We begin with an update about COVID-19. And for that, here's CU Boulder biology professor and science show team member, Beth Bennett. She speaks to us while practicing social distancing at an outdoor location near Boulder. One of the weirder symptoms of COVID-19 is a temporary loss of smell called anosmia. This is the main neurological symptom and one of the earliest and most commonly reported indicators of the disease. Anosmia seems to be a better predictor of the infection than other well-known symptoms such as fever and cough. But the cause of the loss of smell in patients with COVID-19 was not understood. The source of the anosmia was confusing because olfactory neurons, or nerve cells, do not express the gene that encodes the ACE2 receptor protein, which is the way the coronavirus enters human cells. The olfactory system is the parts of our brains and noses that handle our sense of smell. How could COVID-19 cause a loss of smell, researchers wondered, if ACE2 receptors were not in the mix. Researchers wanted to figure this out because a majority of COVID-19 patients experienced some degree of anosmia. Analyses of electronic health records showed that COVID-19 patients were 27 times more likely to have smell loss compared to patients without COVID-19. By comparison, patients with the virus were only around two and a half times more likely to have fever, cough, or respiratory difficulties. Recent work by an international team of researchers based at Harvard Medical School has identified cells of the olfactory system that can be infected by the virus, and it turns out ACE2 is part of it. ACE2 is expressed in the cells that feed and support the olfactory nerve cells. The ACE2 receptor was also found in some of the stem cells and blood vessel cells of the olfactory system. These findings show that infection of these cells that are involved in smelling but are not nerve cells may be responsible for anosmia in COVID-19 patients. And there's good news in that. Because these cells can heal and regenerate more readily than nerve cells, patients with the virus can be assured they're likely to regain their sense of smell. This work was published last week in the journal Science Advances. Thanks to Beth Bennett for that update on COVID-19. And as a final science headline, a shout-out to the Louisville, Colorado company Visala. This Thursday, the Mars rover Perseverance is scheduled to launch. On board will be two small but mighty Visala sensors. Each sensor is about the size of a pencil eraser. One measures humidity, the other measures barometric pressure. In 2015, similar sensors helped detect traces of water on Mars. Good luck to the Mars rover Perseverance and its sensors. This is How on Earth. Stay tuned for how Velcro-like biofilms inside of us might affect our health.
You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. This song is titled Velcro. Velcro has something to do with the new discovery about long-term effects that might follow after infections with the foodborne bacteria known as salmonella. Symptoms of salmonella infection can include diarrhea, abdominal cramps, and fever. Healthy people usually get over salmonella infection after about a week, but sometimes people develop creaky joints and pain, you know, arthritis. Why a fairly brief gut infection can lead to long-term arthritis has been a mystery. Now researchers think the inflammation of joints may involve some curly proteins that cover a salmonella bacteria. These curly proteins can stick together like Velcro to produce a biofilm. Even after our bodies vanquish a salmonella infection, biofilms can remain in body tissues. If the immune system keeps attacking the biofilms, it can inflame our tissues and hurt them. For more, here's one of the lead researchers on the new paper. He's Aaron White from the University of Saskatchewan School of Medicine. White is chair of biotechnology. In this time of COVID, we talked with Aaron while on Zoom, starting with the curly proteins that cover a salmonella bacteria and the work of his colleague at Temple University. So this study came about because Kegla Tukel, who's at Temple, she had studied the curly protein itself and showed that if you inject it into an animal, you get autoimmune responses. So there's just a lot, even in that one sentence, that is fascinating. Let's start out with a bacteria. I've always pictured a bacteria as this teeny tiny thing that looks kind of like a gel cap. You know, it's just this blob that is kind of smooth on the outside but it has these proteins that stick out that look a little bit like fusilli noodles. They're kind of curly. <laughs> yeah. The organisms that a lot of people study in the laboratory are different than the wild type ones. So the ones in the wild are covered in these, like, like you say, fusilli or pasta. Their surfaces are very complex, adorned with proteins and sugars, things that enable them to interact with their world like with our immune system, for example. These little bacteria are not just smooth on the outside. They have what could be antennas. They could have channels coming in to the naked eye under a microscope. It looks like they're furry. It looks like they've got curly hair. (laughs) That's very accurate. I've been studying what they do for salmonella, enable the cells to stick together. And in the past, we had thought that that only happens kind of outside of an animal or outside of a human, like as a way to survive in the environment. Okay, we're going to get back to how this is involved in creaky joints and maybe Alzheimer's, maybe other autoimmune conditions like lupus and Parkinson's disease. But it starts with the fact that these bacteria have this kind of furry, curly outside that lets them stick together like Velcro to make something called a biofilm. Yeah, biofilm is a large group of cells that are stuck together and it provides a survival advantage for the bacteria. So they survive better as a group than they do as an individual cell. They survive better as a group. Does that mean that when there's a biofilm with a lot of microbes hanging out together, bacteria in this case, they're harder for invaders to find? They're protected from the elements. What does the biofilm do for the bacteria? So that's been a major focus of my research is the function of biofilms. Imagine a bacteria ends up in a situation where it's very dry or there's no nutrients, right? If that was an individual cell, it'd be very fragile. But as a group, as a biofilm, 
they cover themselves in this protective coating. And that's what Curly is part of. Excuse me, I'm hearing a lot of beeps of email. Oh yeah, I'll turn that off. You know what that is? What is <laughs> that? Twitter. <laughs> because I just joined Twitter. It's beeping at me. Is it beeping at you about your article? Yes. Oh my gosh. Scientists that I know that have been on Twitter for ages. Congratulations or people I don't know. They're so. literally all a Twitter about your new study. Yes. So biofilms are in nature. It's a little bit like these bacteria form a union or they form a cooperative so that if it's too dry, if they don't have enough food, if it's too hot, they can shelter themselves a little bit by combining together. Yes. You can think of it as, you know, nature's way to uh, survive better. Many, many bacteria do this. And they're not a multicellular animal like a, a mouse no. or a frog or us, but it gives them some advantages of cells sticking together. How about the biofilm, the ones on the outside? Are they more, do they sacrifice their lives? There's a bit of that. Originally, when we studied this, we thought how ants come together and cross the stream. They make like sort of an ant raft. We thought of that for biofilms in these bacterial cells. There is some aspect, it seems like, of cooperation, but it's all aimed at survival. To better withstand stresses, basically. The cells themselves, too, in the biofilm are more stress-resistant than individual cells would be if they weren't in a biofilm. And so all of that, Aaron White, is happening out in the world like in ponds, on the surfaces of rocks, in soil, there are biofilms. There has been talk among healthcare professionals and scientists for a long time that sometimes biofilms can form inside of us. You know, in our lungs, in our mouths, even in our digestive tract, bacteria do need biofilms. They help them survive too. Like, you know, when you get a, a medical device or a catheter put in, certain bacteria, it's very accepted. And known that they form biofilms on like uh, medical devices in your body, artificial joints. That's a huge problem. Bacteria forming biofilms on the surfaces. Ooh, it sounds like these things end up with biofilm slime. Yeah, <laughs> it's very accurate. They're very hard to treat with antibiotics, much harder than the individual cells are. They become a major problem. Doctors have known for many years, 50 years, that the ability of bacteria to stick together makes them more resistant to treatment. They're associated with hospital-acquired infections, those kind of things. Okay, so we know that biofilms can be inside of people. And when they're inside of people, does it make it harder for us to detect that the microbe is there? Or does it just make it harder for us to wipe it out? Harder to wipe it out. You can detect them fairly easily in some cases because they've accumulated to greater numbers than they would just as individual cells, but they're hard to treat. Is it like they put a layer of saran wrap on themselves or a skin? Tougher. Concrete. (laughs) Concrete. So these biofilms end up with kind of a concrete layer on themselves. Yeah, and that's what's unique about curly. They're incredibly tough, resistant proteins. Hard for your body to break down. There's another complication with these. Our bodies make something like curly. This is a complex area to explain. What is unique and what we come to appreciate about curly is that they're a protein called an amyloid. Oh, I know that term amyloid. Right. It's a very characteristic three-dimensional structure. That word amyloid comes up with Alzheimer's disease especially. Yeah, and that was sort of the scary part of our research really was realizing through reading the literature and other papers that were published fairly recently that curly shares the same three-dimensional structure 
as the amyloid plaques that form in Alzheimer's disease. Those amyloid plaques in Alzheimer's disease, there's been a long time debate about whether those cause Alzheimer's or they're a sign that there's been brain degradation. Whichever one it is, when they're present in high numbers, it's more likely to be that there's been brain damage. I, I don't claim to be an expert about Alzheimer's disease. I'm learning about it. So it's my understanding that these plaques, when they're in the brain, they sort of cause this dysfunction in the brain. There's the debate about whether or not the amyloids actually generate dysfunction or whether they're a Band-Aid that the body puts in as a structure to keep damage from cascading. So there's lots of questions about it, but there's no doubt that the amyloid itself is a sign that there's been stress inside the brain. Right. Our bodies make amyloids. So not just bacteria, our bodies make this structure that is very similar to the one in the curly proteins in microbes. The difference is that the human proteins that become amyloids have a normal function that's not an amyloid. It's just that they misfold and make these amyloids. I'm going to stop again then because you just said something else that the proteins that we call amyloids that are associated with Alzheimer's disease, we know that they're a misfolded protein. There's something about the misfolding that may make it cascade, meaning more and more get made. The scary part is how similar the three-dimensional structure of curly is compared to these amyloids that are caused by misfolded human proteins. Scientists, doctors have wondered how these human proteins start to misfold and, and how that process is speeded up. And that's where the connection to our work comes in. Okay, so strangely folded curly proteins on a microbe are a good thing for the microbe. It's a good thing because it helps them stick together and make a skin and protect themselves from all kinds of things. However, the properly folded protein in the microbe looks very much like a protein looks inside of a human when it's misfolded and starting to do some things that are associated with a lot of damage. That's exactly it. What was so surprising about our paper and why it was such a big discovery is that these biofilms were thought to be outside the body only. So to actually discover some of these things inside the body means there's a greater chance for interactions to occur between these curly proteins and these human proteins which misfold. Is salmonella unique in making a curly protein that is very similar to the misfolded amyloids in human bodies or are there other bacteria and microbes that can make this furry outer stuff that ends up looking very much like an amyloid that's misfolded in a human that's again a bit of a scary point okay because e coli you keep saying scary and i'm getting scared i didn't think i'd be scared talking <laughs> with you i guess what, I'm, what i mean is maybe not scary is the wrong term but i mean like what makes this more of a generalized wide-scale thing is that Escherichia coli, so E. coli, the most commonly studied bacterium in history, also makes curly. In their intestines, most people have E. coli. I'm not saying that they do make curly, but they have the ability to do it. Plus, there's other members in that normal bacteria that can make curly as well. All right. So there's a fair number of microbes that can make this free curly outer coating that can look very similar to the misfolded amyloids that doctors find in the brains of people with Alzheimer's when they do autopsies. You have this, the word scary. Let's stick with that. Aaron White there of Saskatchewan. <laughs> Let's stick with that word because are you implying that you started wondering what if a load of these 
microbes with these curly proteins, if they get into the body too much, what if they do something to how our immune system works or how our own protein folding works so that our good proteins say, hey, let's take an idea from these misfolded proteins and let's do that too. Yeah, that's exactly what there's a potential for. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. We're talking with Aaron White. He's a professor at the University of Saskatchewan School of Medicine who has recently published a paper about how salmonella infections can lead to biofilms inside our bodies that are created by curly proteins that cover the salmonella. Up next, Aaron White explains more about curly proteins, salmonella infections, and what may happen if salmonella leaks out of the gut. We end up eating in our diet a lot of these bacterial amyloids. If your intestine and your gut is functioning normally, those amyloids never get exposed to anything in our body other than the digestive tract. And the same thing goes for the autoimmune responses that we noted in response to curly. That seems to only happen once the lining of the intestine is breached. Well, then you're telling us, even though there's some scary implications to this, this has been happening for millions of years in mammals. And usually it works out okay because our digestive tract keeps the curly proteins from filtering into our blood. Yeah, it went into the tissue surrounding the intestine. And then I guess ultimately the blood. But as scientists, we tend to think of it as, as more into the what we call the systemic tissue. So the tissues that are outside the intestine. That's good news, but also not good news because... There is a condition that's been talked about for decades now called leaky gut. A more specific term for it is intestinal permeability, where proteins from our food don't get digested into small enough teeny tiny pieces and instead find some cracks to get through that are bigger. And so larger fragments of proteins can get into our other tissues outside of our digestive tract. You're nodding as we're talking. You're absolutely right. So that's a problem. It just gives a greater chance that there's interactions between quote unquote bad proteins and human proteins. That's what was uh, surprising to us in this paper that we published. First of all, that we could detect salmonella biofilms in the gut, but that we know salmonella during its normal infection, like foodborne illness, causes mass inflammation in your gut. And that creates sort of a leaky gut syndrome for a time period until salmonella is cleared. But during that time, we know that these biofilms are then there and that the curly proteins are there and the gut becomes more permeable. And suddenly you have a situation where these curly proteins could easily be leaking out into the tissue surrounding the intestine. Dr. Tukel has studied for years now what happens when you in, inject curly into a body and it and causes autoimmunity. And so we teamed up because my specialty really is on the biofilms and detection of curly. She had a lot of evidence that salmonella made biofilms in the body, but she'd never been able to uh, detect it directly. And that's where I came in and helped to detect it. And so now all the things that she had measured in previous years, we learned could happen in the course of kind of a natural salmonella infection. So that the biofilms were there, 
plus curly proteins cause these autoimmune reactions. In this case, arthritis, which is again a surprise. Let's hold on to the fact that you have said that the good news is that a healthy gut that is not leaky is likely to keep these microbes and their curly proteins from going into the bloodstream. You're right. It is comforting in that. And that was, for me, a, quite an interesting part of, of this paper. If the gut is intact and functioning normally, they even restrict the access of these type of proteins to the outside. I'm going to give my gut a little pat right now. <laughs> it is, it's amazing some of the things our digestion does for us and the reasons to help it be healthy. There has been some thought among some health researchers and maybe some scientists too or both that some of the modern practices of how we live do more to mean that there's cracks in the gut, meaning that more things leak out. There's foods that people can eat that will mean that the gut isn't as, as good a repair. There are medications people can take that can mean that the gut tends to have more leaks to it. There's the stress of pollution. There's the stress of just stress or not getting exercise. All of these things can affect how healthy the gut is. And there is a rise of autoimmune conditions, and it looks like possibly conditions like Alzheimer's that may have some relationship to how healthy the gut is. Are you shaking your head going, yeah, I'm listening to you? Or are you shaking your heads going, I agree? So uh, to, put it, to put this in perspective, and I thought about this, you know, for maybe the last six months to a year, as our papers in different stages of getting reviewed and then published, you probably couldn't pick a worse protein from salmonella to be inside your body. Imagine why salmonella makes them in the first place. It's to stick together and prevent themselves from getting wiped out. So now you've got that protein potentially leaking into the tissue surrounding your intestine, and they're really, really tough. They're really hard for the body to clear. In terms of arthritis, maybe these curly proteins can lodge into joints and things like that. And because they're so resistant and tough, the body doesn't clear them fast. All right. So they're hard to scrub away. I keep wanting to have a Brillo pad somewhere inside my body. That's a very accurate way to, to think about it. I 100% agree with that. That's the way I think about it too. If you could scrub them away, bacteria are making a biofilm to stick together and make themselves hard to eliminate. So Curly's part of that. Is there a possibility that our bodies when they're healthy, do have the ability to do good housekeeping and scrub away some of these biofilms on their own. Yes, very much. And we probably encounter biofilms every day. Why it's significant with salmonella is that salmonella has mechanisms to disrupt normal gut function so they can make greater numbers of themselves. And when they do that, that means that the gut can be leakier, more stuff yeah. can get out. We can't really hate these microbes because they're just trying to get after our hydrogen. <laughs> um, it's their life cycle. They invade us. And in Salmonella's case, foodborne illness, pass back out into the environment to infect other animals, other people. All right. And as we're telling this story that is somewhat scary, it's also possible that if a person hypothetically could pull off enough stress from the body and let the body go through a full healing process that the body could get rid of the curly proteins and heal and the pain potentially might go away? Yeah, it's, it's always a, a battle. 
anybody's immune system is going to clear some of the curly, it's just whether it clears at all or not. And in certain individuals, maybe it doesn't all clear and then they have problems. But then there's other people where their immune system does clear at all. I tend to not think of it as they cleared or they don't. The immune system is always battling and, and fighting. The immune system is always battling and fighting, and it's also always in a healthy immune system telling the troops, it's okay now, you can go home. And that's an important part of the immune system too. Or it says to the immune system troops, it's okay now. Right now, we want you to put on your medical badge, and we want you to go in and start helping repair the tissues. Yeah, the ability to activate, but then also to shut itself down and prevent this friendly fire where they damage the tissues surrounding what they're actually trying to fight. Just as a reminder, getting enough sleep, eating food that's good for your body and good for your digestion, doing things to reduce stress, you might actually be helping your immune system in some huge ways. Yeah, absolutely. Keeping it in balance. You know, these types of discoveries that maybe open up a new avenue of interactions that we didn't even know occurred before, you know, you have a target now. Our discovery is uncovering more to the story helping us determine better ways to treat autoimmunity or inflammatory arthritis, things like that. Maybe Alzheimer's, maybe Parkinson's, maybe lupus. You know, there's still lots to be tested and researched. And maybe the scary part is just how similar the structure of these curly is to the human amyloids that are known to be part of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and ALS and things like that. They're very, very similar. Knowing that these bacterial proteins, these curly, can persist for a long, long time, we haven't made that connection yet, but certainly seems logical from a science perspective that it would make sense that these can potentially interact. Well, it's probably too early for there to be a consensus about how to deal with this, but I'll bet you in your Twitter feeds that you're getting right now, you're going to be seeing a lot of ideas. Yeah, for sure. I will be collaborating with other scientists that are experts in these other diseases to try and see if there actually is a link and then perhaps how to slow down the process if it is happening. I'm Shelley Schlender. We've been talking with Aaron White. White is chair of biotechnology at the University of Saskatchewan School of Medicine. White's recent study about salmonella is published in PLOS, the Public Library of Science. We'll have an extended version of this interview on our website, along with a transcript of the interview. all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced by yours truly and engineered by Mabe Conran. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Rusty, a song called Velcro. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. 